This is Salon Mix, featuring the people, trends, phenomena, and experiences that define and inform our lives and culture. I'm Salon's managing editor, Erin Keene. Who doesn't like to bitch a little when they get the chance? Award-winning journalist and activist Lori Penny may have cornered the market with her new collection of essays, Bitch Doctrine, Essays for Dissenting Adults. In it, she covers the issues of our age, pulled from a collection of her work for a number of publications, including Salon.com. Not much escapes her purview, including politics, pop culture, and feminism. Lori Penny sat down with Salon's Amanda Marcotte to share what's on her mind today. I feel like, at least in the United States, we're seeing a lot of people arguing that things like identity politics and feminism are a distraction <sighs> from, from that kind of way of thinking. And, and I feel like you are really good at, at replying to that argument. So I want to hear you reply to okay, it now. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you can just see me go, <laughs> when everybody say, whenever anybody says identity politics in that way, and I appreciate that that's probably not what you think, but this idea that gender and race and issues of identity are somehow at odds with the real leftist agenda of you know, class and economics, it's not just offensive, it's, it's factually incorrect. That's what gets me about it, is that you, you cannot have a proper analysis of class and economic power without looking at gendered labor and without looking at race. You just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make economic sense in any country in the world, but particularly not in the United <laughs> States, where the entire class system is predicated on slavery you know, and predicated on that kind of annexation of human labor. The entire way that jobs and, and, and wage labor works is predicated on the fact that a lot of people will do a great deal of the work that needs to be done in society for free, mainly women, often women of color. And this is just, this is basic economics. It's not even, it's not a matter of cultural politics. It's, it's, it's economically idiotic to argue that you can talk about class only through the lens of, you know, only through an objective lens, which obviously means, you know, white guys, you know, yeah. only as it relates to white, the white working class, which is this phrase we've seen tossed around a lot here and in, and in the UK. Um, I, all politics are identity politics, is the second point. All politics are identity politics, especially the politics of the far right. They are about this idea of white identity, this idea of male identity, that is that feels so under attack at the moment. And when people when people attack identity politics, they are attacking politics that prioritizes or even includes women, people of color, queer people. And I just don't understand how a socialist politics that doesn't put people who aren't white and male front and center can can get anything done. And actually if you look at what's happening on the ground, if you look at the actual organizing that's being done, it is mainly you know, it is women, it's people of color, it's queer people actually doing the organizing in their communities. It's just that you don't, you know, people who are the loudest voices on the left often want to kind of obviate that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. this is, I get quite, I get quite upset about this because I'm an, I'm, I'm obviously an emotional lady and nobody should listen to anything I say, but. <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't agree more. So, so speaking of something kind of hilarious and fun, both we have something in common. Mm -hmm. We have both um, had fairly publicly like um, watched encounters with Milo Yiannopoulos. Oh God! 
<laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah. What I loved your essay about hanging out with him because he just doesn't see. And for yeah. those who don't know who he is, are those people yeah, exist anymore? Yeah. He's a Breitbart so. writer who is basically trying to put a, a fun gay, like actual gay presence in the sort of fascist movement now. Well, no, he's a sociopath who is making a career off you know, off the alt-right and off this cult of personality that he's kind of glommed onto and then a deeply, I think, a, a deeply unhappy person. Not that that matters too much because he's actually making a lot of other people unhappy by proxy, which matters more. But yeah, the, um, oh God, Milo, I, I really don't <laughs> want to talk about him ever, okay, ever again. No, no, it's, it's, it's all right because people will ask me about this stuff. The essays about Milo are not actually in the book. I deliberately left them out. Because you know, if people want to find them, they can find them. But I don't want to. I don't want to be the person who writes about Milo. Yeah. Um, but I find it interesting that because I I knew him before he was Milo, like when he was just a, just some you know vaguely right wing young conservative dude running around the UK, trying to get on the TV, and he burned all his bridges in the UK because everybody realised he was completely nuts in a bad way and didn't want to work with him, so he came to the US, where nobody realises that he's joking. Everybody takes him seriously, and that's, you know, for somebody like, you know, it's exactly what people in the Trump administration do, it's this weaponised trolling. The point is that just because somebody doesn't mean the evil things they say seriously, it doesn't mean that people aren't, aren't out there taking them seriously. Well, and it doesn't mean that they don't do damage. Followers. Of course, yeah. Because people, you know, it's this howling void of, of, of moral affect. Now this guy, he will say anything, he'll say anything. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to him what he says and who it because I don't think he has a real sense. I don't think a lot of them have a real sense of the damage they do. But that doesn't matter at all. I think it, it's, if they cared to know, they would find out quite easily. But as with so many people who do political work on the right, there are things you deliberately choose not to know because if you chose to know them, you would have to change your outlook on everything and change, and you probably wouldn't be able to do the work you've chosen to do with your one bloody life. <laughs> it's well, really upsetting. <laughs> so, I mean, setting him aside, it, it struck me as interesting in, in the way you wrote about those followers. And also, like, just generally, you have a number of essays in the book where, because I think there's like um, the alt-right and all these angry yeah. young men really kind of go after women like you especially mm -hmm. who are science fiction writers yeah, and yeah. involved in Nerds. sort of geeky things. They came for the nerd girls first. Yeah. Which was, you know, it started with Gamergate, which I don't think we even need to explain actually, do we? Like, you know, the campaign of harassment against women in the games industry. And it started with with Gamergate and with anti-feminist trolls in general, the harassment of women online. And this started years ago, yeah. years and years ago. And I've spent years, and so many other people I know have spent years saying, this is serious. These people really mean us harm, and, and they we are doing told. harm. Yeah, we were told, oh, it's just, it, just get off the internet. You know, you're, 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 uh, you know, you're overreacting, silly women, you know, just, you know, it, it's just words, words can't hurt you. And now these people are, you know, are taking power are taking power around the world. This kind of, this, this canny weaponized trolling is, and we don't have, I feel like, you know, it's not something I enjoy being right about, actually. No. It's not a kind of, I told you so, that gives any of us any, any pleasure. 
but it's, I feel like if more attention had been paid to the tactics and techniques that were being used against women and writers of color and minority activists five or six years ago, the, you know, not necessarily the election would, would have been different, but the left wouldn't be so much on the back foot right now. But it was just ignored because it was only women and people of color being targeted, so. Why do you, why do you think that the right has become so nihilistic in that way. I mean, it, it started with Gamergate, and it's this kind of politics of trolling, like you said. I mean, it feels like they're only out to destroy. Yeah, I think it gives them satisfaction. I think it's an easy, look, I'm not actually myself a gamer. Many of my best friends are gamers, but I'm not a gamer myself. I know many gamers, sometimes we hang out and do gamer things, like go to, you know, watch Game of Thrones. But no, I, I just, I don't have, I was never, I never learned it as a kid. We weren't allowed video games when I was growing up. But it's a it's a gaming mentality, and it's a mentality of of winning. And they see the entire world as like a as a series of boss battles and a series of fights. And that's how they understand politics. And it's a way of it is a way of doing electoral politics, a vicious, evil way of doing it. So you see everybody else, particularly when you're behind a, as a, a computer screen, as a set of you know, a set of obstacles, a set of featureless, faceless, not really real people who you can line up and knock down. And the, it's, you know, you, you, you set your own win conditions. And they decided that the win conditions, that the, the big boss battle was getting Trump elected. And yeah. now they're not quite sure what to do. Because yeah. actually one of the interesting things that's happening, um, and uh, one of the things that gets them most upset if you point it out, is that there was a real a sense of, you know, frustrated underdog society. There was a feeling that they they were the real overlooked people in society, and they were kind of they they were the rebel alliance, and they were bravely fighting back. I know it's true against like the forces of feminism, which had taken over the world. And you know, I, leaving aside how quite they got to this unbelievable point of view. Um, their guy is in power now. They're not the resistance anymore, if they ever were. They're not underground. They're not alternative. They're just the right. They're yeah. just the same old right. And a lot of people, are. that's actually quite existentially threatening for a lot of these people who are often very young guys who all see themselves as the heroes of their own story, bravely fighting this resistance battle. I think, look, a lot of it, and this is something I do say in the book, is that you, you understand a great deal more about politics when you understand that everybody believes they're the hero of their own story. And nobody really, very few people believe that they are, that they're the baddies, yeah. you know? Yeah. If you point that out to people, they usually don't turn around and say, oh my God, we've been, we've been wrong this whole time. I've, I've very rarely seen that happen. Yeah. Um, the kind of work I'm doing at the moment is, is about giving people not necessarily offering the hand of friendship, but pointing out ways back across that divide. Because I don't think it's too late for a lot of people. And, and people disagree with me on this, right? I'm not going to tell anybody how to organize. Absolutely not. But I, a politics based on militant understanding up to a point of no return, I think has a lot of has a lot to say for it because there are there, you can't write off everyone who has been seduced as a young kid into this into this evil mindset. You can it's much much easier to write off ideas than people, or much you know more morally easier. I think we can. There is still space for us to distinguish. 
That was Salon's Amanda Marcotte talking with journalist and activist Lori Penny. Lori's new book is a collection of her essays entitled Bitch Doctrine. You can watch their conversation and listen to more episodes of Salon Mix at salon.com. While you're there, click on podcasts to find more of the shows we're listening to, like Inflection Point, featuring conversations with women who have met a challenge head on and are ready to tell their story. The Salon Mix team is executive producer Lauren Schiller, with audio mixing and editing by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. And I'm Erin Keene, your host, managing editor at Salon. Thanks for listening.